Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand really high. Keep it up. Wave it. The other ushers will bring you a copy of a Bible. If you get a Bible from us, it'll be page 634. So wave those hands. Get them really high. And it'll take them just a, you know, a couple minutes here and in the conference center. Take a couple minutes to get to you. Uh, we're, we're in week 12 of a... 13-week series on doctrine. And we have yeah, this may be as much, for, and maybe because it's not what we typically do. Typically, it's a book study. I've had more response positively to this series than any series we've done in a long time. And especially among so many of you that are not just new to Gilbert, but you're new to the things of God and the scriptures. We talk about this as a staff. We're seeing a huge number of people who we've never seen before. And we discover, and when we talk to you, that you're new to redemption, new to Gilbert. But many of you, it's all brand new. We've seen people consistently in the course of this service uh, through, through these 12 weeks come to Christ in repentance and faith. As we begin to, whoops, as we begin to unpack God's story. Why don't we just leave them off? Why don't we unpack God's story? I've been on vacation. We were over, Susan and I finally got out of town. We were over on the coast. We had a great time. I, 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 I came to a conclusion over on the beach. Not everyone was made for swimwear, okay? <laughs> now, myself included, just so you know. Me too. Speedo doesn't go with mine, okay? So, so, in this series, what we've seen, we've seen so many people who are saying, boy, here's the story. It makes sense. From the triune God to his revelation to us through his word to creation to now man's sin. And then God's promising, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this. God becomes flesh, dwells among us. Christ dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. So that's part of that story, but that's not the end of the story. We said even as we look at the network, Acts 29, and people go, well, wait, there's no 29th chapter in the book of Acts. Well, that's the point. It's the continuation of, of God writing his story through your life and in my life today. We, we stay, try to keep this in front of you. If all God wanted to do was get you to heaven, bam, he would have taken you there at the moment you believed in him. But he left you here for a reason and for a purpose. So we've looked at the last two weeks at kind of corporate. But anything we do corporately, we can also apply individually. But we looked at the church. And then last week, um, Tim took us through a, a study on worship. Uh, in the course of that study, Tim made this statement. He, 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 it was actually in the form of a question. When was the last time you were offended by something you heard in a message. And then he went on to say that it's possible that you're going to see that or experience it as we talk about worship, but he made the statement, it's exactly true, that, that when we tend to be offended is when we hear something, these will be my words now, that gets in our grill, that invades our space, that exposes a weakness in us or a sin in us. Where all of a sudden, God holds up a mirror, and we look in that, and we go, boy, that's me right there, and I don't like that, and who are you to tell me? So I get that all the time. Anytime I teach on, on kids, I'll always kind of get that. And I get it, because if there's anything that just fills you with guilt, it's just dealing with your kids. I don't care how old, my, my girls are 30, 31, however old they are, as long as you, once you have that kid, you have some little piece of your heart that's out there walking around in the world somewhere. And the most perfect parent can always look back and say, I should have done this, I should have done this, I should have done that. Well, today we come to a topic, maybe you got through last week and you said, boy, I didn't get offended. There's a good shot we could do it today, okay? <laughs> so, so, today we're going to talk about stewardship. Now, if you've been around the church culture long enough, you hear stewardship and you immediately think what? Money. money. So the minute you hear stewardship, you're grabbing your wallet. 
okay? And, and, and you're going to say, okay, this is about the guy. This is what, maybe you came suspiciously, antagonistically. Maybe you've been here a while, but you have a lot of, you're timid about it. And you go, I don't like, here's one of the things I don't like about church. All they talk about is money. Well, one of the consistent criticisms I get from the staff, from elders, and from leadership team is that I don't talk enough about money. So we're going to talk about money. But even in that, it's in the whole discussion of stewardship. It's not the main focus, though we'll spend time on it. In Ephesians chapter 4, and that's where you are right now, we see a pattern. We see it in the book of Ephesians. I picked three books that Paul wrote. The book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Romans. It's a pattern that we've acknowledged, but we need to remind ourselves all the time of this. Paul has this pattern, general terms now, two big buckets. Each of these three books written in two big buckets, doctrine, application. Here's what happened, here's the truth, so what? So in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul has just laid this beautiful, heavy, heavy doctrine on us. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore... Because all of that is true, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance uh, for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in verse 4, 5, and 6, you see the word one, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. So, so he, he uses the word walk. He says, therefore... So because you're a new creature in Christ, okay, because you were dead in your sin and trespasses, but now you live, because you're a new creature, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The word that's translated walk is not a reference to some primitive form of transportation. It speaks to the way we live. So, so here's what he's saying. Because of the great riches of God's grace and mercy, because you were saved by grace through faith, because Christ is in you, now live that way. Act that way. Behave that way. I want to see that difference in you. Turn to the right. It's page 639. It's the book of Colossians. It's the third chapter, the first verse, and you'll see a very similar pattern. Again, verse three, chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 in the New American Standard begins with the word, therefore. So he's talked about these amazing truths. He's, talk, he's talked about, about Christ's riches and Christ's gifts and, and, and Christ creating and holding together and, and us being built up in Christ. So he says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, that's those of us who, who have been placed in, into a personal relationship with Christ, keep seeking the things from above, which, uh, which Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. So he says, here it is. It's essentially the same idea. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Now he tells you, here's what I want you to do. It's not just live. Paul talked about in Ephesians 3, some of, some of the characteristics we ought to see in our life, gentleness and all that goes with it. But he said, no, here's what I want here. Set your mind on the things above. So we get at a fundamental basic principle. What I believe affects how I behave. So we have a very volatile stock market. If you believe, okay, that uh, Wells Fargo stock, I don't know Wells Fargo had to be, I haven't checked it this week, but I'm going to guess it's around 24, 25 bucks. If you believe Wells Fargo is going to be at 50 bucks by the end of the week, you believe that, you're going to act on it with whatever resources you have. It may only be a share, maybe be a whole bunch of shares, but if you believe that, then you're going to act on it. If you believe Jesus who he said he was, you are who he says you are, and now you're this new creature, you're going to live this way. And it's going to take me thinking differently inside. I need to think and place my mind on the things above. Now turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's page 616 in the Bible we gave you. It begins with the word therefore, and it's there again. So, so Paul's given us these amazing truths. 
No one's good, no, not one. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That, that we now, nothing can separate us from that relationship with him. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So what he's saying is, worship isn't just limited to what we do in this room or something that's even associated in and of itself to, let's say, something we would say, oh, this is clearly a spiritual thing. It's Bible reading or, or, or teaching or prayer or fellowship or small groups or singing songs. It's that, but it's way more than that. He kicks the slats out of that limit, and he says, listen, present your bodies, and the idea there is all that you are. All that you have, your time, your energy, your effort, your money, everything presented to him. Now, he gives us a warning in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, because there's what's going to slow this down, to be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? Well, he picks up an idea that we saw in Colossians 3. But, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to worship. One of the translations says, it's the only reasonable act of worship. If God has truly redeemed you, if God has truly, through the Holy Spirit, come into your life, and you have this new heart, this new mind, you're a new creature, the only reasonable response is to give him everything. It's where Paul says, I'm a slave, a bond servant. It's the lowest form of slave. It's a slave that says, everything I have isn't mine, it's the master's. Even my life itself, even my own desires aren't mine, for what I do is what the master desires. Oh, I'm going to say, Oh, my golly. 20 years ago, maybe, I was invited by the University of Arizona when, when, the, when the Wildcats were up here to play ASU. I was invited to do a chapel for the football team. And so this were my, oh, my golly, maybe more. It had to be more than 20 years ago. And, and so I'm, I'm over there, and I'm relatively new, and I decided I'm going to teach this. And so in my, in my own naive, nonetheless cute way, I paraphrase verse 1 as saying, what God is saying here is, give your bod to God. Yeah, no, it, yeah, it wasn't any better then. Um, but what I didn't know is there was a guy from Sports Illustrated who was writing an article on, on that game and was in that chapel. So on that, on that uh, weekly issue of Sports Illustrated, he talks about this very clever, except he didn't use that word, he inferred it. Uh, and, and quoted, give your body to God, okay? Well, that's kind of what it says. So when Rush Limbaugh says, with talent on loan from God, though Rush may not know all of the implications theologically, he nailed it. Here's what he said. Is everything now I have, God's given me, and my response, we get to today, is to steward it. Now, what's going to get in the way is... is, is to conform to this world. So John writes this in 1 John chapter 2, and he says this, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, that is not from the Father and the world's passing away. So he said, here's this battle. We have this battle. The battle with the flesh. We have the battle with Satan. We have the battle with the world. It doesn't mean the globe. It means the world system. And he's getting even at a worldview. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The J.B. Phillips paraphrase says this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. In the message, Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Not an outward conformity to some sort of system, legalism, religion, but my heart's changed. That's what it's getting at. I'm a new creature. 
My mind should be different. My heart should be different. My desires should be different. So it's the way now that I live. God talks about ownership. And and he he goes, if we take the Bible, from a huge macro view and narrows it down. So God claims ownership over the entire universe. Let me just read you four passages. Deuteronomy 10.14. To the Lord your God belongs heavens, the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains. I know the creatures of the field are mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't have to tell you, for the world is mine. And then he narrows it down to commodities in Haggai 2.8, and he says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. So we can read that and say, okay, God claims ownership over all these things, but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, page 6, maybe 620. I don't know. I don't know that I can read my own writing there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, for you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So here's what God says. God says the world and everything in it, the birds, the beasts, the cattle, the gold, the silver, all of it is his, including you. So what God has done, this is very important, this is the key. If you don't get this, the rest of this is a total waste of time. So if you can hang in there and get this, even if you check out after it, at least you can come back and kind of reference it. If you don't get this, we're wasting our time this morning. This is the key to this, and it's transforming. What God says is everything in your life, including you. So let's stay focused on you. All the resources, your time, your energy, your effort, your money, all of that is his, and he's transferred possession to you, but not ownership. Okay, got it? Got it? Got to get that. So again, Talent on loan from God. My time, my energy, my effort, my money. We may even say, oh, I couldn't take a a breath if it wasn't for God. This very day is a gift from God. That's exactly right. He's transferred possession to you, but not ownership. We easily make the mistake of saying, because I have possession, it's mine. Because I have possession, I can do whatever I want with it. But the reality is, no, I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. Mark Driscoll writes this, generally speaking, there's two ways to see our life and possessions. One is through the perspective of ownership, whereby I, my life, my possessions belong to me alone. The other is the perspective of stewardship, whereby I, my life, my possessions belong to God and are to be invested for his purposes. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul tells us as leaders to steward the church. In 1 Peter 4.10, he tells us, all of us, to be stewards of the gift that God has given us. So there you go. You are a steward, not an owner. And that changes your relationship with everything. Let's, let's deal with just cash for a while. If this is my money, I can do whatever I want with it. I don't have to answer to anybody about it. If I want to blow it, I can blow it. If I want to save it, I can save it. But if this is God's money entrusted to me, I'm not free to do whatever I want to do with it. If, if this 24-hour period today is mine and I can blow it on anything I want, That's very different than if I understand it's a gift from God that he's given to me and one day I'll be accountable for that. If I look at my job and understand it's not about just punching in, punching out. It's to understand that God's placed me there and will one day judge me accordingly. 
It's the family that God's given me. So here you go. Think Bernie Madoff. Think Bernie Madoff for a second. If Bernie Madoff did all of that investing with all his own money, it wouldn't ma- he wouldn't be in jail. We might say he's stupid. We might say he's reckless. We might say he miscalculated. I don't know. But he wouldn't be a criminal. That wasn't it. What had happened is people had given him money, entrusted him with this money. He had misused it, misrepresented how he used it, lied about it, moved things around, and invested for his benefit, not theirs. He acted as though it was his own. The term is fiduciary. He has a fiduciary relationship with a client. You have, in a sense, a fiduciary relationship with God. All of your resources, your time, your energy, your effort, your money, all of those are gifts that God's given to you. To use for sure, but to one day be accountable. So my daughter, now even the, even the language breaks down. I don't get hung up on this, by the way. But my daughter was in, sitting right over here, first hour. Well, I call her my daughter. I, I went and met my grandkids. But in reality, though, though we share DNA, she's not really mine. She's God's that he entrusted to me and my responsibility in raising her was not to make her everything I wanted her to be but to make her independent of me but totally dependent upon God that was our whole objective in child rearing there are different ways to accomplish that and we might have done some things you wouldn't do we could have the same goal and approach it in different ways but I understood Sarah's not mine, she's God. Haley's not mine, she's God. So we go through the whole list. Braden's not mine, he's God. Gracie's God's, Reagan's God, Brooklyn's God, Yale's God, Lucy's God's. They're all his, that he's for sure entrusted to us. But you have to ask, see, this is what I said. You may not get offended today, but you can easily get frustrated. Because I'm not going to give you a lot of answers, but I'm just going to jump in your face over and over and over again and say, you got to figure this out. And what happens is my pride, your pride, my ego, your ego so often gets in the way. And I really believe it. I say this a lot. And I, I, sometimes just for effect, but most of the people I know don't really love their kids. Because if they did, they wouldn't treat them the way they do. If you push and push and push, I don't know if you even want that kid to come to Christ so they have a relationship with Christ. You just want a better kid that you don't have to mess around with. No, that's not true of all. That's true of some. I'll see it all the time. Somebody will say they're retiring and they'll go, they'll have a kid in Seattle, a kid in San Francisco, and a kid in San Diego. Kid in Seattle's great, kid in San Diego's a mess, kid in San Francisco's in between. And they'll say, we want to spend time with our kids. They'll always go to the kid that's good. They never go to the kid that's bad, that needs the work. They never move to be with a troubled kid. So I'm only going to be with a kid because I'm going to get something out of it too. See, our hearts are pretty dark, aren't they? I can't be the only one. <laughs> Isn't that right? Am I, am I that bad? No, it's just how we are. See, that's why when you look at this and you go, okay, you got to figure out what you, you got to figure out your time and your energy and your effort, your money. So when it comes to time, that's the great equalizer. Um, R.C. Sproul writes this, time is a great leveler. It is one resource that is allocated in absolute egalitarian terms. Every living person has the same number of hours to use in every day. Busy people are not given a special bonus added on to the hours of the day. The clock plays no favorites. So when we'll talk about money in a minute, and we can talk about gifts, we can talk about abilities, we can talk about how you look, and some are handsome, some are pretty, some aren't, uh, some are tall, some are thin. We got all this, some are smart, some aren't, we got it. But, but when it comes to time, everybody's got 168 hours this week to invest or spend or waste. And that's why Paul tells us to redeem the time. So I have to ask myself those hard, hard questions. We were in uh, Coronado, and, and I love, I mean, I, I'll go and I'll sit over there and I just talk to people, you know, the whole time. 
you know, strangers really, and I'm sure they're going, get away. But, but, but I talked to them, and, and I, a ton of people that are retired. Oh, my gosh. Susan and I went to a play. I said, look around this room. Everybody in here is so old. Oh, my gosh. It's us. We're eating dinner at 3.15. It's, it's, it's not good. It's just not good. And so I, every person I talked to, I said, how do you like being retired? And every one of them said the same thing. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Okay. But I, but I don't know where the time goes. Okay. Now, I don't mean to be mean, but God one day is going to say, but I'm going to hold you accountable for that time. And I understand that you need to relax. I understand, trust me, I understand wear and tear. I don't have near the energy or ability. I used to teach seven times on a Sunday. I teach four times now, and I'm just physically whipped. I get that. You need to rest. I got it. But all day? Read the paper? Why? So you, here you go. So you listen to Rush. You listen to Hannity, you listen to O'Reilly, you listen to Greta, you listen to Shepard. I can tell the people that have done this same thing all day long. They listen to this stuff all day long, and they get angry, and they get bitter, and they spew out all these bumper stickers. Turn it off. It's screwing your head up. But it's right. I got it's right. It isn't going to change anything. Put on some music. If not Glenn Miller, then, then, then something. Something and redeem the time. He's going to ask me the time. Here you go, your work. Uh, Driscoll has a paragraph in this book, and I had to read it and read it and reread it because I want to make sure I know what I want to say. I, I want to make sure it's what he says. He writes this Jesus' life exemplifies both the formal and informal aspects of ministry work. Roughly 30, I'm sorry, until roughly 30 years of age, Jesus worked as a common laborer's job as a carpenter. For the remaining roughly three years of his life, Jesus said he was about his father's work. Jesus' ministry work included exhausting preaching, teaching, demon confronting, feeding, healing, uh, traveling by foot, more. When you read that casually, it could be read this way. Jesus spent 30 years as a carpenter and then three years of ministry. That's not what he's saying. He's making a distinction there between formal and informal. But, but I, I want to just obliterate any misunderstanding of this. Here's what God is saying. Is everything in your life is sacred. So when you go tomorrow and you go to school, whether you're in the mathematics class or teaching the mathematics class... It's sacred what you're doing. You sitting and taking notes here is no more sacred than studying math there. You who are teaching math tomorrow are not doing anything that's less sacred than what I'm doing here. One of the huge problems we have is we make this delineation between ministry and then just everything else. What do you do? Oh, I just work at Intel. I just work at Discount Tire. I just work at Fry's. I just work at Basha's. I just teach at Mesquite. I, I, I just work at Shea Homes. What do you mean just? I just stay home. I'm just a stay-home mom. Are you kidding me? Every one of these are sacred ministry positions. You don't have the luxury of saying, okay, Sunday from 1030 to noon is sacred. Everything else is a lead up to that. Oh, we got a Bible study on Wednesday, that's sacred. No, your whole life is a ministry, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, uh, you're keeping books. You're doing accounting and administrative managing work. And you're, you're doing it at, at, uh, at, at I don't care, pick it, I don't care, at, at Chapman Chevrolet. Or you're doing it here. You're Neil here. The one at Chapman isn't, isn't more, isn't less spiritual than this. So many people, I just keep hearing them say, boy, I would love to go to work in the full-time ministry. You are in the full-time ministry. 
had coffee with a guy, and he's going, ah, oh, my life. I want ministry. I said, what do you do? I'm an attorney. What kind of law do you practice? Family law. Oh, my gosh. Talk about full-time ministry, divorce, bankruptcies, all sorts of issues. That's a sacred work, and God's given you that, and he will judge you how you work. So when you say even, oh, I'm too busy, that's impossible. If God's given you something to do, he's going to give you the time to do it. Now, you may be wasting the time. Or you may have said, oh, God wanted me to do this big thing. He really gave you this little thing. But whatever it is, God gave you the time if he gave you the call. Also, we can mention one other thing. Page 658, it's 1 Peter 4. And we'll touch on this. And then we'll talk about money. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Peter writes, it's page 658. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as, here's our word for the day, good stewards of God's varied gifts, varied graces. So God's given us very, very lots in life, various gifts, various spiritual gifts. He, he, even as he gives, for example, let's say, it, let's say he gives the gift of teaching. Uh, he gives it to some, in a, it seems to me, in a much bigger dose than others. There's some guys that I listen to and I say, okay, this guy's got the gift of teaching, but, I, I, but I'd say it's like a four. This guy's got the gift of teaching, but it's an eight. And you know what I'll do? Here, 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 two insights here. These are really valuable. Number one, I can develop gift envy really quickly. And I will of a sudden want that guy or that gal's gift, and I fail to understand that God's given me the gift he wanted me to give, at the, at the dosage he wanted me to have it, and he's going to hold me accountable for how I use it. The other thing is a misconception of gifts. Uh, it was probably 25, maybe 30 years ago now. I was teaching a Bible study at Grace Community Church Wednesday night. And there was a guy there who came up after one Wednesday night, and he said, I'd like to, I'd like to have lunch with you this week. And I said, okay. And I never asked why. I do now, but I didn't then. Uh, <laughs> been on some long lunches. Um, and, and, and with the wrong person. You know, people want to talk to me about something. I go, gosh, you need to talk to him. So he said, I, I want you to help me identify my spiritual gift. So he walked away and I said, this is perfect. Because when I'd get there, so the class is at 7, when I'd get there at 6.30, he'd already be there. So I didn't even have to come at 6.30 anymore. I could come at 6.45 because at 6.30, he'd have the room set up. He'd turn the air conditioning down. He'd get, he'd get, I'd need a music stand and a stool. He'd get the music stand. He'd get the stool. He'd get me a bottle of water. He'd make sure everybody was comfortable. When we were done, he'd be the last one in. He would, he's got the gift of service. So we go to lunch. We order. And he said, I'd like you to help me figure out my spiritual gift. And I said, well, brother... I've prayed about this. I pray, thought about this. And I said, you have the gift of service. And he said, no, I don't. And I said, yes, you do. And he said, no, I don't. And I said, you have the gift of service. And he said, I don't have the gift of service. I said, listen. And I took him through the whole 630, tables, chairs, da, da, da. He said, it can't be. Now, listen to this. It can't be the gift of service because I enjoy it so much. Because in our mind, we're going, if I'm going to do this for God, it's going to be awful. It's gonna, I'm going to hate every minute of it. It's going to be just agony. No. God's giving this gift, whatever this gift is, when, when, you, when you're in the zone, when you're using that gift, man, everything's happening. At the end of the day, you don't feel worse. You feel better. You may be tired, but it's a good poop. It's the thing you do that it, it, it excites you. It charges you up. It may not have anything to do with Bible study. It may be that you're like that. You're in the neighborhood. You're the guy that fixes everything, and people love to come, and they love. They, we met our new neighbor the other day. The house has been empty for, for like three years. And, um, and so I said, hey, you know, it's good to meet you. And we went through the whole routine. I think we've talked about it here. No pet. Doesn't have any pets. Perfect. Um, 
they're gone. They're, they're out of town three weeks a month. Perfect. So uh, he, said, he, he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, today my, to- my toilet's broken. I can't get the, you know, my wife's sick. She can't fix it. And, and <laughs> well, I had to call Susan Miller. Um, and, and he said, well, why don't I come over and fix it? I'm thinking, this is the perfect neighbor. When he's here, he's working on projects for me. Well, you may be the guy in the neighborhood that everybody comes to, and that's your way of ministry and serving them. And they'll go, why do you do this? Is it because you enjoy it? And you say, yeah, that's the way God made me. Let me tell you about him. You, you may be the older lady in the neighborhood. Like, I hear you go, I'll have a bunch of old people say to me, I love ministry. You want ministry? Here you go. You're old. You want ministry. I'll tell you how to have a bucket load of it. Move into an area filled with starter homes because they're all young families, and you'll be the only old people there. And they'll come to you as Nana and Papa, and they'll want to play with you, and you'll be able to teach them how to cook and sew and knit, and you'll be able to say it's Jesus. See, if you want ministry, there's plenty of ministry. I don't think I want that. So it's not a ministry issue. It's a comfort issue. And I know that because it's the way I look at it. Let me talk about money. Jesus is very clear. He doesn't stutter or stammer. In Matthew chapter 6, and, and you can, you're welcome to turn there, but it's so familiar. I'm sorry, I don't have a page. Num, uh, 526, maybe. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus lays it out very plainly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Don't store up treasures for, your, for yourself on earth, but in heaven... Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll love one, hate the other. You you can't serve God, and you can't serve simultaneously the world. You can't serve both. Paul tells us, as he writes to Timothy, young protege, in 1 Timothy 6.10, he said, and you know this, let's make sure we get this clear. This is very important. We'll spend just 30 seconds on this. The, what? Love of money is a root of all sorts. He doesn't say money. In his book, Business for the Glory of God, a really provocative book to me. If you're a business guy, if you're a free market capitalist business man or woman, this book would be very helpful to you, I think. Grudem writes this. In fact, because we say, oh, money's not bad, money's not good, money's neutral. Grudem asserts this. In fact, money is fundamentally good. Because it is a human invention that sets us apart from the animal kingdom and enables us to subdue the earth by producing from the earth goods and services that may benefit others. Now we get at it here because we're going to talk about you and your stuff now. Okay, you and your dough. Driscoll writes this, simply put, if we love money, we use God and people. However, if we love God, we, we are free to use money to love God and to love people. Our money is inextricably linked to our worship, both corporately and individually. See, here's why we're going to talk about money. Not because we need it or want it, but because it's a spiritual issue. I said that during the last building campaign. Because they get a lot, and, and, and I'm open to this, and I have people who want us, when we do things like that, to do them more professionally, and, and I'm okay with that. But, but our last building campaign went like this. We got good news and bad news. The good news is we got all the money we need. The bad news is it's in your pocket. Now, but, but, but to me, that made sense. So I'm not, these next 15 minutes are not calculated on how I can get your assets into the church. Though I think that's important. Let me tell you why. Because it's an indicator of your spiritual condition. Why is it you don't want to talk about this? Why is it that I can talk about adultery, celibacy, stealing? I can talk about any of those other things. And go get them, brother. But I start talking about dough, and they go, all you guys care about is money. 
That is not true. I don't know that you can find a place that's any more low-key about money than we are. We, it is not at all unusual to have somebody say, hey, I waited all service for you guys to pass the baskets. Did you forget? No. We put boxes by the door because we believe that the people of God, with a little bit of education, not guilt, not manipulation, education, that when they're confronted with it, they'll want to give and they'll do it. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it's page 628. I'm going to give you a little background. When I taught 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's a lot in there about money. And I remember this specifically. We were averaging at the time, I think it was like 70, 70 grand a week was the budget and the income. Okay. The first week I talked about it, the next week the giving was 110. The next week, because it was part one, part two, the next week the giving was 125. We were done with it. The next week it was 110. The next week it was 100. The next week it was 90. The next week it was 80. And, and that could actually be, and, and it makes sense, that could actually be a strong call saying, we need to talk about this more. If we really believe this is a spiritual issue, and I do, if we really believe it's a spiritual issue, we need to keep this in front of you. So I taught one time, God says, listen, I want a cheerful giver. So I would say, if you can't give cheerfully, don't give at all. And there was a guy here at church uh, who's involved in Crown Ministry, who came up and he said, I think you taught that totally wrong. I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, do you think giving is an obedience issue? I said, I do. He said, do you think it's a spiritual issue and God will hold you accountable for whether you give or not, how much you give and where you give? I said, I do. So he said, how can you say to somebody, it's an obedience issue, but if you can't do it cheerfully, don't do it at all. He said, would you, take, would you deal with somebody who's single and, and, and they're involved sexually, would you say to them, if you can't be cheerful and celibate, don't be celibate at all? I said, no. Not really. I think Tim feels that way, but I don't. That was just a great lesson to me. God wants a cheerful giver. He doesn't say, if you can't give cheerfully, don't give. It's an obedience issue. But listen, if this money and that grappling that's going on, if it's going like this, you got to ask yourself, why? Why is this so hard? Now, we're going to get into all sorts of different things. We can. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He said, brethren, verse 1, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in wealth of liberality. There's a very poor church in Jerusalem, and, and these churches in Macedonia, so Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, they're really hurting. They're under persecution. They hear of the famine in Jerusalem. They give toward that. And Paul says in verse 3, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave uh, their own accord, of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for favor of participation in the support of the saints. He said, now this is real important, and it really fits for where we are in the economy. He said, these are people who are really, 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 really hurting, but they know there's a need, they know it's an obedience issue, and rather than say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give when things get better. They say, no, we're going to give in fact, even as things the way they are, we're going to give sacrificially, uh, we're going to give um, obediently, we're going to give voluntarily, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to give according to how we've been blessed. So here you go. Here, here. No one ever asks me, should I give? People do ask, how much should I give and where should I give? You should give where God is blessing you. If you're a member of the church or attend this church, you should be giving to this church. How much? They'll talk about the tithe. Tithe means a tenth. 
And certainly we saw that in the Old Testament. In reality, in the Old Testament, there were tithes and gifts and offering. So when a Jew was all done with their mandatory giving, they were giving approximately 25% of their gross income. So when you say, I want to tithe, I feel my heart leap with joy, amen, brother. Now we just have, we are in the process of redoing, since we're putting the campuses together, redoing memberships. So memberships the same across the board, same issues. And one of them is on giving. And we're trying to figure out exactly what we want to say in there. And, and I think where we're landing is kind of where, kind of where Driscoll is in, his, in, in the book. And that is to say, we can look at the Old Testament tithe at 10% and say, this is really impo- important now. To say, that's a floor or a base, that's not the ceiling. That's not a goal. So, so let's, let's stay after it. If, if you're working at Starbucks and you're making 30 bucks a week, you should be given three bucks at least. If you're babysitting, you should be. It's an act of obedience. It's not how much money should you give to God. It's how much of God's money do you keep. What's sad is the facts tell a very different story. We'll give them to you. More than one in four American Protestants give nothing. From 1968 to 2005, giving declined from 3.1% of income, which, listen, remember what we said, 10% is a floor, to 2.6% of income. The median annual giving of a Christian is $200. About 27% of evangelicals give 10% or more of their income. That means roughly 73% are giving less than what we determine is the floor. 5% of Christians provide 60% of the money. 20% of all Christians account for 86% of all giving. Among Protestants, 10% of evangelicals 28% of mainline denominations, 33% of fundamentalists, and 40% of liberal Protestants give nothing at all. So, So if we are correct, and I think we are, that this is a spiritual issue... We've got whatever, what, 25% of the people aren't even approaching the topic. I was talking to Neil this morning. I said, I said what, do you think I should tell this story? And then I told him, and he knows the story. I said, do you think I should tell this? He said, I think you should. I said, you know, Susan, I don't think would want me to. That's why I ask you. Uh, and she's sick, and she's not here today. So in my life, I, I, and some of you know this, and I apologize for a little bit of the repetition, but I do, I do nothing around the house for 30 years or whatever it was, nothing. She one day said to me, can you put out the garbage? I put out the garbage. She said, it's Friday. I said, whatever. She said, they pick it up Tuesday. I said, well, how would I know? You said, put out the garbage. I don't know. So I didn't do anything, okay? I, I, I now do a lot. I was at the grocery store yesterday. The one thing I didn't do at all, and when Susan was very sick, I said, listen, you pay all the bills. You need to pay the bills. And then it became clear to me about a year ago that I need to take that. And, and, and she said, I don't, I don't want you to do that. And, and I think if we were to psychologically diagnose it, it was kind of the last thing she did, and I think she didn't want to lose that. I don't let her drive. I took the car away at Christmas. Well, all of a sudden... About, and I said, okay, okay, okay. Are you all right? We're all right. All of a sudden, early this year, it became evident that our bills weren't getting paid. Not because of lack of money. They were there. And, and let me be clear. It wasn't her fault. It's mine. I should, have been, I should have been more aggressive. So I'm telling Neil this story. I, took, I went into to, to Bank of America. I said, who's the most patient person you have here? And I said, that, I said, that would be Hannah. And I said, all right, Hannah. So I said, that one, Hannah, I had a bag full of paper, and I said, Hannah, I want to tell you a story. In 1978, I married this beautiful girl. And she said, oh, my gosh, it's going to be a long story. I said, very, <laughs> very long. Hannah, it's going to be a long story. We could go to lunch if you need to go to lunch. We could go to lunch. 
So when I was all done, I said, Hannah, please just treat me like I'm your dad. Help me like I'm your dad. I'm helpless here. So I moved everything to auto pay. I move all this stuff over. Uh, the things that weren't on auto pay, I put on a credit card, which has an auto pay attached to it. So I'm telling Neil this story, and Neil said, but you haven't given to the church this year. I said, that's not true. That can't be true. I know. I know. I, I can remember standing in the conference center, dropping a check in there. And I'm sure Susan has in the time she's been here. And he said, no. He said, it's April, and you've given once. And I normally give once a month. He said, look at your trend. Here it is. It's here. You give, you give this, and then it accelerates, and you do your thing. I said, oh, my golly. So then I went, and I said, I have this new thing I just discovered called auto pay. <laughs> and we had these long discussions about, oh, is that really, isn't it worshipful? Isn't there something, isn't there something spiritual about dropping the check? Here, here, no. <laughs> Here's the end. No. I'll tell you what, it's a lot more spiritual to give on auto pay than not give at all. And so I have to go back, and I have to, between now and the end of the year, i got to figure this up and get caught up. And my, my point there is to lay myself as bare as I can before you and say, I know these things happen. But this giving thing is not an optional deal. If you say Jesus is Lord, then you ought to be writing checks. Okay? And, and for those of us who have jobs, as times are difficult as they are, we need to write bigger checks, understanding some people can't. But if you can find money to do X, if you, if you, you got cable, you got internet, you got smartphones, even though some of you aren't, and you got all these other things, and you're not giving, you got here. Your problem's not me. Don't be writing me emails. I'm not your problem. You're your problem, man. You feel guilty now. You know why? Because you are. Okay? <laughs> And your problem is between you and God. How much should I give? That's what I mean by frustrating. Some of you look at 10%, man, and, that, and, that, and you're dying to get there. Others of you, that's chump change. I let all that sit. When we talk about giving, there's never been a gift like the gift of eternal life that we received in Christ Jesus through his death on the cross. Matthew comes to lead us in our time of communion. Father, thank you for these amazing, awesome truths that change our life. God, we are yours. You own us. God, you transfer possession but not ownership to us of our time and our energy, our effort and our money. God, make us faithful stewards. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.